Good morning. My name is Phil Rankin, and I'm one of the elders here. Uh, if you could get your bulletin out, I want you to look at the front cover. And uh, we're going to discuss number two on your front cover, building up God's people through the ministry of the word. So um, if you would, take a second and stand with me as I read God's word. Psalm 119, verses 49 through 56. I'm going to read from the New International Version. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. The arrogant mock me unmercifully, but I do not turn from your law. I remember, Lord, your ancient laws, and I find comfort in them. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. In the night, Lord, I remember your name, that I may keep your law. This has been my practice. I obey your precepts. Thank you. You may be seated. God's word is a central theme for the church today. And many times we argue about how to apply, how to interpret, and how to live out that word. I like sometimes looking at paraphrases, and I know some people just get disgruntled over that, but in the message, that passage I just read to you kind of gives a feeling that I appreciate. And so I'm going to read it from the message again. This time you don't have to stand, but it says in the message, which is a paraphrase, Remember what you said to me, your servant. I hang on these words for dear life. I mean, you get a sense of importance with that? These words hold me up in bad times. Yes, your promises rejuvenate me. The insolent ridicule me without mercy, but I don't budge from your revelation. What is God's revelation? His word. I watch for your ancient landmark words, the words of old not just something new, but your ancient landmark words. And I know that I'm on the right track, but when I see the wicked ignore your directions, I'm beside myself with anger. I set your instructions to music. God's word can inform our music. And I sing them as I walk this pilgrim way. I meditate on your name all night, God, treasuring your revelation, O God. Still, I walk through a reign of derision because I live by your word and counsel. So last week, Ken began to take us on a journey for rediscovering that bulletin cover statements that you have in front of you. These are declarations from the church leadership that assert who we are as a church. I see them as what statements. What are CBC's priorities what are we as a body of Christ followers? And so question number one, uh, on your insert, I have a question for you. What are we to do while here on earth? And last week, Ken's statement dealt with that. He brought us to highlighting the significance of worship for each of us as individuals but also in the collective effort to worship as a gathering of people seeking to glorify God. In essence, 
we are intending to glorify God through our worship. And so that first statement answers that question, what are we to do while here on earth? What is the main thing that we are to preoccupy ourselves with? And the answer that we got last week was to worship God in a way that glorifies him. And Ken shared with us John 4, 23 through 44, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. These next statements on the front cover address what does that mean. Think about this. There are those who worship the wrong God or gods. Ken talked about that last week. And then there are those who worship the right God, but in the wrong way. You mean, Phil, there's a wrong way to worship God? Don't get me started on this. <laughs> I'd be here forever talking about that, uh, for those of you who have gone through theology of worship with me. So this begs the question, where do we go to find out how to worship God in spirit and in truth? What is going to help us worship him in truth? What is your main source, what is my main source of guidance going to be? Where do we find the blueprints to construct this phenomenon of that first statement? What has the ability and the authority to teach us to do that first statement? What has the authority and the ability to teach us to glorify God in all that we do? What will transform us as a people to be separated unto God as true worshipers? This is the declaration of statement number two on your bulletin. It answers the question, where do we go to learn how to glorify God? Answer, God's power for building up his people is in the word. In Acts chapter 20, Paul calls the elders of the church of Ephesus, calls them together, and he's kind of commissioning them, and he says in verse 32, I now commend you to God and to his word of grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Again, let me give you a little nuance on that from the message. That same verse from the message, Acts chapter 20, verse 32, reads it this way. Now I'm turning you over to God, our marvelous God, whose gracious word can make you into what he wants you to be and give you everything you could possibly need in this community of holy friends. God's word is what can construct us into the people or the person that he wants us to be. Jesus admits the importance of the word and its work in making us who God wants us to be. When he talks about the disciples being left after he's getting ready to leave in John chapter 17, he says his high priestly prayer, and he says, 
in verses 14 through 19, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. How can we become the true worshipers of Jesus Christ? By being sanctified in the truth. God's word is what sanctifies. We're going to take a look at that in a little bit. But I think maybe you're getting the importance of the word for us as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ. So, what we at CBC are stating with this second statement is that there needs to be a preeminence or a priority given to the ministry of the word. The ministry of the word. Everything that we say or do not only needs to be done to the glory of God, as you studied in Sunday school this morning, and, but also 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Excuse me, to the glory of God. But everything needs to be driven by and filtered through the inspired revelation from God that we have already been given. We cannot overestimate the importance of God's word in our daily lives as individuals. Many of you have already experienced that because you spend time in God's word daily throughout the week. But neither can we overestimate the importance of God's word as a body, as a church, in our body life. The importance is the same. So the word is what sanctifies us as we, as a corporate group, provide ministry through which the people are built up in Christ. This involves all that we do here as a church. It includes all the opportunities that come before us to minister. The word should direct all the programs that we employ. It should guide the decisions of the elders. The word prescribes the administration of the body, of our body, and it steers our teaching. And the word requires the devotion of the members of the body to its very reliability, sufficiency, and relevance to our daily living. Was it not God himself that told us Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. It is important. So with this recognition of the need for God's word to be important to us as a church, let's look at why it's so crucial to have this piece in place for a foundation before looking at those other three statements that are still coming on our bulletin cover. So in the next couple weeks, we have to have this foundation laid to help us get a grip on those next three. 
If you go back in the Old Testament and the story of the Israelites in Deuteronomy, chapters 27 through 30, you see Moses giving direction to the Israelites just before he's getting ready to leave them and before they go in to the promised land. And some of the things you'll find there in chapter 29 specifically, Moses is telling them, Therefore keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord and with whoever is not here with us today. That's you and me. Go on down to verse 29 of Deuteronomy 29. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Verse, uh, chapter 30, verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So we see even back to the time of Moses and actually to Abraham, where it says that he listened to God's word. He had faith. He believed God's word. It is the word of God that guides us in the matters of life and death, blessing and curse, good and evil. Why would anybody want to replace it with something else? Is there really a need to add to the commandments of the Lord? Is there anywhere else that will so provide comfort, hope, and the taste of mercy as there is in the word of the Lord? Don't you find with the psalmist that we read, Psalm 119, that this word brings life to the soul. It's a life preserver. God's word ministers to any soul and to every situation pertaining to the blessings and the frustrations that we have in life. So let's talk about what does it mean to have the ministry of the word? There's three aspects of the ministry of the Word that I could see. The first one is living the Word. The second one is teaching the Word. And the third one is preaching the Word. In the Psalms, in Psalm 1, there's these six little verses that are well known, but really begin the whole book of Psalms with this idea of the importance of God's Word being part of our daily living. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. The words, the commands, the precepts, the statutes, the word of the Lord. He meditates on those. He delights in it. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. 
For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The whole concept of what's happening in the life of this person in Psalm 1 is based upon what? The fact that he delights in God's word. And for good reason. Because when we have God's word in our life, we experience the ministry of the word in our life. And here's some of the things that we will experience. First of all, the ministry of the word enables us to overcome temptation. The ministry of the word enables us to overcome temptation. Just as it did for Jesus in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan, what was his reply? The word of God. And so in Matthew 4, 4 through 10, you have the account of every time that Jesus was attacked by Satan, he turned to the word. It enables us to overcome temptation. But while it's helping us to overcome temptation, it also provides spiritual protection against that temptation. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, the word of God is described as the sword of the spirit. So it is something that can be used and spiritual warfare also helps us to overcome temptation because it is a source of strength that enables us to stand firm against evil, as John says in 1 John 2.14. You young men, I commend you because you stand strong, because you have the word of God in you. Those who have the word of God in them will stand strong against temptation. Secondly, the word of God enables us to live a sanctified life. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Equipped for every good work. That's a life that has been sanctified. Ephesians 5.26 says, when Jesus is talking about the church, the body of Christ, he says that I have given them your word, oh, excuse me, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with the word. How did Jesus Christ sanctify the church? By the washing of, through the word. And so it helps us to live a sanctified life. And it's interesting that some of the concepts of sanctification and what that means, sanctified, to be set apart, to be holy, to be claimed as belonging to something different, something special, belonging to God, sanctified. There are verses that talked about you have been sanctified. There are verses that talked about you are sanctified, present tense, past tense, present, and some that talk about being sanctified, future tense. So how does all that come together? It comes together through the ministry of the word. Thirdly, it enables us to stand firmly rooted in a broken world. Going back to the prayer of Jesus in John 17, verses 14 through 19, Jesus says, I have given them your word. We like to focus on the fact that Jesus gave us his spirit. That's coming up in the next phrases on your bulletin, trust me. But here he says, I have given them your word, and the world hates them. Do not remove them, but sanctify them. 
So within the midst of the broken world, the Word is what firmly roots us and helps us to stand, as we've already seen. So there's a benefit of living the Word or the ministry of the Word in our lives. We need to live it out in our daily living. We need to be doers of the Word and not merely hearers of the Word. And it enables us to overcome temptation, to live a sanctified life, and to stand firmly in a broken world. Secondly, it revives us. When the ministry of the Word comes to us, it revives us. We've already seen that in Psalm 119.50. This is my comfort and my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The Word of God gives life. A great illustration in the Old Testament is in Ezekiel chapter 37 in the Valley of Dry Bones. If you're familiar with that story, Ezekiel's brought to this valley where it's just full of dry bones, and God says, hey, I want to teach you something. And so the Lord says, Ezekiel says in chapter 37, verse 40, the, the Lord said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And then the rest of the chapter goes on and describes these bones coming together and sinews and flesh being put onto them and coming to life simply by the word of the Lord. And so God's word, that's an illustration of God's word revives people. Thirdly, it produces faith. In Romans 3, chapters 10 through 17, we hear... Um, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How do people come to faith? By the ministry of the word. I'm going to leave for you today specifically by preaching. But the fourth thing we see is that in living it out, it also trains us and convicts us. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing of the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It knows us. It cuts all the way to the deepest part of us. Every single one of us in here can find ourselves somewhere in the scripture. James says in chapter 1, verse 21, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. Why? Because the word is like a mirror. It shows us ourselves. It shows us there's people in there, there's situations in there that are similar to what we are doing and dealing with. He's like a man who looks intently in his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself, verse 24. And so living out God's word is a daily thing that we deal with. The ministry of God's word helps us in all of those areas in our daily life. Secondly, when we talk about the ministry of God's word, we talk about teaching. <clears throat> We've already read some verses that use that phrase, <clears throat> and all of us look for, 
for ways to be taught the word. But we see that teaching is a category that we want to try to understand because there's a third category that's different than teaching. But we have a tendency to lump the two together, probably because there is some overlap in teaching and preaching. But I want to make sure this morning that we're understanding that teaching is simply instruction. Teaching is simply instruction. We have all sorts of ways to teach, don't we? We teach from learning from example, and we have different ways of learning. Some of us are auditory learners. Those of you who are nodding off right now, that's not you. Um, Some are kinesthetic learners. They have to do it to learn it. Um, There's different ways of learning, and teaching is part of that process. When we look at Moses, he was called a teacher, but what was he doing when it called him a teacher in the book of Deuteronomy, or excuse me, in the book of Exodus, in chapter 18, it says what he was doing was he was making judgments about the law for people. And they call that teaching, making a judgment. Also in Exodus, we find one of the teaching tools that was used was the festivals. The people of Israel were commanded to keep these festivals as a teaching tool, and you will teach them to your sons. And they will know because of this, this sign So if you've ever sat through a Passover Seder, you know the four questions. Why do we do this? We do this to teach you. In Ezra and Nehemiah, excuse me, we see that Ezra was a teacher. That word is used of him. And what did he do? He studied. And most of us, when we say the word teach, we think of studying. And most of us, when we think of going to church, we don't come to study. (laughs) We're not thinking school. Oh, no, great. Another classroom? Oh, great. My professor at college or my teacher at high school is really boring. This is going to be really boring, too. But what do teachers do? They study. It's academic. And there's a place for all of this. There's a place for having experiential learning. There's a place for academic learning. But we see that these are the different types of teaching. Also, in the book of Exodus, we have some teachers that God says, I've gifted them to be teachers by the name of Bezalel and Oholiab. What is it that they were teaching? They were teaching skills and crafts. I'm not thinking arts and crafts, but probably maybe some art work too. There's different things that we teach. We don't just teach God's word, we teach other things just as we teach our children how to drive a car or how to take care of their room. So there are many different things that we do when we mention the word teaching. What about families? I just mentioned mentioned that. Parents are teaching children by modeling, by talking with them. And you're going in and you're going out. Thank you, Ken. <laughs> in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, the, the parents were admonished, teach your children in the way as you walk about and when you're in your home and you're going in and you're going out. And also in Proverbs 1a, it says, sons and daughters, do not despise your mothers and your fathers. Teaching. That happens all the time. It's not just here on Sunday morning. It's not just all of these things that I've mentioned are not just things that we come together for on Sunday morning. 
These are things that we do throughout the week. And then Paul in the New Testament says, I'm sharing my life with you. In 2 Timothy 3.10, when Paul, the great teacher, talks about teaching to his disciples, to Timothy in particular, he says, I'm sharing in my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. I'm teaching all of these things to you, Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 5, 21, he says, and I, my, the goal of my instruction is love. Discipleship is a, has a lot of teaching going on in it. And Paul emulates that for us. So teaching has this very broad term. And teaching, I believe, is for training through instruction and experiential knowledge. Teaching is for instruction and experiential knowledge. Not many of you this morning came here just to gain knowledge or came here to have experiential knowledge. But I think maybe what you came for is to connect with God through preaching. Because preaching is different than teaching. I want you to realize that you can teach and not preach. But you cannot preach without teaching. You can teach and not preach. Look at all those examples I just gave you. But there's this relationship between teaching and preaching, but preaching goes beyond. It's preaching is teaching plus. In 1 Corinthians 1.17, the word that's used for preaching is evangelizo. And it means to announce good news, to proclaim, to preach. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, the word is caruso. It means to loudly announce, publicly, a public proclamation. One that is done with authority, like we might think of in the old stories. The king's proclamation has gone out, so in the public square, here we go. In 1 Corinthians 2.1, the word that's used is kategelo, which means to announce, to declare, or to decree. And in 1 Corinthians 2.4, to proclaim or preach, the word that's used there is kiergma. Kiergma, try to spell that one. Kiergma means having, uh, to proclaim or preach while having a claim on the hearers. In other words, to have something that they have to respond to. It connects to them. Holding a claim upon the hearings, on the hearers. So preaching is teaching plus something else. Preaching is authoritative declaration. It's not just giving clarity or instruction or knowledge, but it's making it real. Preaching is more than just giving content. It's not enough to say that a preacher was true to the text. But did he connect the power of the content and the intent of the scripture? Is there a presentation that brings the power to change lives? To enact the ministry of the word? 
Preaching is not just saying things about the word, but it's actually conveying the word to the listeners. And preaching is to be Christocentric. Christocentric. In other words, who does the preaching draw attention to? Is it about the person who's presenting the message, or is it about the person that gave that presenter the message? It's not that we just talk about the gospel, but that we actually deliver the gospel. I think the American church today does a great deal of talking about the gospel. When we say that preaching is to be Christocentric, we need to realize that we should not preach, the preacher should not preach as if everyone in here is a Christian. That would be more of a teacher thing. But even equally important to not thinking that everybody in here is necessarily a Christian, the preacher should not preach as if the gospel is not for Christians. Have you ever sat under a preacher who gave a a rousing rendition of a gospel presentation and felt what it has done for you and your heart? Just to be refreshed and encouraged to hear that again as a Christian? And so preaching is to be Christocentric. When my family was looking for a church to come to before we came here, we were visiting different churches and we visited a very well-known church in the area for Mother's Day. And the gentleman did a great job of emotionally connecting with us about mothers. And the fact that mothers, you do not have to beat yourself up because you know the mother of all, Eve, that's what her name means, Eve messed up too. And so it's okay to know that you messed up. And we all walked away from that sermon just, I mean, tears were in people's eyes. Tears were in our eyes. And we went to lunch and we said, what was missing? What was missing? And I said to my family, I said, it's the fact that they weren't being Christocentric. If he would have gone one step further and said, the reason why you don't have to worry about messing up as a mom is because Christ has died for your mistakes and the fact that you can't do it on your own and he will give you the power to do what you need to do as a mother. See, there's a difference between talking about Christ and presenting Christ. And even us as Christians need to be turned back to Jesus Christ. And then preaching requires a response or a verdict. One should not go away just praising a gospel presentation, but should actually go out and now declare its truthfulness and its usefulness or its insight for living. So that when you have sat under the preaching or the ministry of the word, the power is there for you to change where you need to change. First Peter 4.11 talks about preaching as when one is speaking the very words of God. Not speaking about the words of God, but the very words of God. 
It's not, well, I believe. I'm guilty. I've done that even today, this morning. Or I think, or I feel that this is the word of God. I think this is the word of God. I believe this is the word of God. It's a no. This is the word of God. We don't want to sit in the pew and have someone say, not everyone outside of Christ is going to hell. I think. No, we want to know God's word on the issue. You see, knowledge from teaching does not become wisdom until it changes you. Knowledge is not wisdom until it changes you. And the chief end of preaching is to give men and women a sense of God's presence. The preacher is called to proclaim Christ, not discuss Christ. True Christian preaching consciously removes all dependence upon humanly, divided, humanly devised techniques of persuasion. It's about God's word. God's word is going to minister you better than any technique or device I could come up with. Let God's word do the ministry. And because of that, I'm saying the biblical priority is to give the word the prominence that it deserves. That's why the preaching of God's word should be the central and most important thing we do together as a body. That's what Sunday morning service is about. Not how do I feel. Not did I like the music this morning. But was I ministered to by God's word? The Old Testament gives prominence to that. Lots of words in, the, in, in our English language, the one word that we have for preach, there's like tons of different words that are translated into the English preach. Some of them in the Old Testament are the word sekel, which means to give a sense or meaning to, or bin, to cause, to understand, or kohelet, is a, is a preacher, is a kohelet, one who calls out, calling to a preacher, or hose, one who glows or grows warm. What is that about? Ken's going to explain that next week. <laughs> Why would he be glowing and growing warm? Because there's something that the Spirit connects to the Word and the ministry of the Word. And navi, or navu, um, navaim is the plural word in Hebrew for prophets. The prophets. These are ones who pour forth or announces under divine impulse the word of God. And that is a central theme throughout the Old Testament. If you go back and you look at your books in the Bible and you see the, the calling of Isaiah, the calling of Jeremiah, the calling of Amos, the calling of Hosea, it was always, and the word of the Lord came to me, and the word of the Lord says... That's the idea in the Old Testament. It's prominent throughout the Old Testament. Moses himself was called a prophet, the giver of the word. And then Jesus Christ, when he's walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke 44, verse 24, he says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
See, Jesus Christ was even acknowledging that the law and the prophets and the Psalms were God's word. And there was a living and active sense to them that should be acknowledged and given prominence to. And then we look in the New Testament, and we notice that in Acts chapter 2, when the church was being formed, it lists some things that they committed to. And at the top of the list, the, the idea of first, primacy, was devotion to the teaching of the apostles. And that word teaching can also be connected with preaching by some people. But what were they doing? What were they teaching? At that time, was there a New Testament that they were teaching when the church started? No, they were teaching the Old Testament. They were preaching the Old Testament. They were giving understanding to the Old Testament. And we see that the Spirit moved and hundreds and thousands came to the Lord. So it's important to observe that the devotion to the Word, to correctly understand the Old Testament and the teachings of Jesus was a matter of primacy in the early church. They didn't gather in a circle asking each other, what does this mean to you? No, they wanted to know the truth, so they focused their attention on the teachings of the apostles who could accurately impart to them the proper meaning through the Holy Spirit. The Word of God is going to be essential for us at CBC if we want to be a healthy church. Everything else flows from spirit-taught knowledge of the Scriptures. There's that connection in John 4, spirit and in truth. They go together. But everything else flows from the spirit-taught knowledge of the Scriptures. And our fellowship is guided by it. That's the next thing they list. Devoted to the teaching, oh, there's fellowship. The breaking of the bread, oh, there's teaching. Oh, let's do this. The breaking of the bread's governed by it. And our prayers are to be in line with the word. Our churches today need to have a similar commitment to the devotion of the scriptures. And our people need to see just how important and vital the word is to their daily lives. So we have some contemporary concerns, don't we? We see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that primacy, that prominence, the preeminence of the preaching is important. But the contemporary concerns come in where we substitute modern ideas for preaching, partly because of socially and culturally how we have turned against the idea of authority. And the men who stand behind the pulpit, who let us down, who maybe haven't prepped properly with the Word of God. And so we have modern substitutes for preaching, such as debates, discussion, small group chats, or conversations. We'd rather have that. Can't we just do that on Sunday morning? I don't want to be preached at. Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you've ever heard him or read him, is known as one of the great preachers of our time. Maybe a little before my time. He says this, I argue that in many ways is a departure of the church from preaching 
that is responsible in a large measure for the state of modern society. The church has been trying to preach morality and ethics without the gospel as a basis. It has been preaching morality without godliness. And it simply does not work. And the result is that the church, having abandoned her real task, has left humanity more or less to its own devices. The real task of the church is to preach the word of God. To preach the word of God, connecting with the Holy Spirit, so that the power of God and the intent of the scripture ministers and creates what God would have it to create. John Piper says this in response to the modern movement towards preaching, the negative modern movement towards preaching. His response is, oh, how precious is the Bible. It's the very word of God. In it, God speaks in the 21st century. This is the very voice of God. By this voice, he speaks with absolute truth and personal force. By this voice, he reveals his all-surprising beauty. By this voice, he reveals the deepest secrets of our hearts. No voice anywhere, anytime, can reach as deep or lift as high or carry as far as the voice of God that we hear in the Bible. It's a great wonder that God still speaks today through the Bible. But many people don't think that. It's a great wonder that God still speaks today through the Bible with greater force and greater glory and greater assurance and greater sweetness and greater hope and greater guidance and greater transformational power and greater Christ-exalting truth than can be heard through any voice in any human soul on the planet from outside the Bible. I don't know. It just makes me want to jump and shout hooray for the Bible. The Bible is soul food. I love the taste of T-bone steak. Delicious every bite. But there's nothing like the word of God for my spiritual appetite. The word of God has milk and meat and even ice cream and cake. Take a slice of the bread of life and coffee to keep us awake. Open your Bible and turn to the Psalms for David's famous buffet. You can drink all the wine of the word you want and still feel fine the next day. There's enough of the word for everyone, and no one has to cheat. The word of God is a smorgasbord. So take all while you are able to eat. Do you thirst for the words of the Lord? Or do you want some technique up here in the pulpit? Amos 8, 11 through 12, God gives a warning to the people of Israel. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but for the hearing of the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, 
and from north to east that shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and they won't find it. Preaching is teaching plus. Preaching the content and the intent of God's word is what unleashes the power of God on the people of God because God's power for building his people is in his word.